a historian, okay, but I've always loved the idea of being so intrigued by some kind of historical mystery somewhere in the annals of history that I could hole away in some old, in some, a crevice of an old library and just pour over, dig through dusty old books to unlock some historical mystery. Um, kind of like a literary Sherlock Holmes, you know? That, that probably sounds a bit more like a Dan Brown, Brown novel than, than reality, but it's still exciting. The idea is exciting to me. One of the difficulties that you have when you explore real history is that original sources are pretty difficult to come by. And the further and further you go back into history, the rarer and rarer it is, or the more difficult it is, to find those original sources. And one of the unique things about Christianity is that we actually have loads of original sources from the, the very first apostles of Christianity. Those people who are intimate companions of Jesus. We have some of their writings, and not just, you know, a letter to Aunt Susie or, or the shopping list. You know, that's kind of when you go on these archaeological digs or something, that's what you usually find. It's, not, it's kind of interesting, but it's not that helpful to have the, you know, shopping list 4,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago. We actually have their first letters to the earliest of churches, these little communities of Christ followers, the very first ones on earth. That's remarkable from a historian's perspective. And we're going to explore one such letter today, the entire thing. The letters known as 2 and 3 John are actually the shortest in the New Testament. So we're we'll looking at the shortest letters in the entire New Testament. And they are written by the person, same person as 1 John, the person who was probably the most intimate companion of Jesus. John was likely Jesus' best friend, his beloved disciple. So we get to peer into something quite remarkable this evening and, and as well next week. John is writing to a local church. Although that needs some explaining, because if you look at verse 1, John addresses the letter to the lady chosen by God and her children. It was common for the community of God's people, you have to remember this, in those days, to be referred to as, as, as some kind of female figure, especially because this is a way of expressing love and endearment for a community. So give me, let me give you an example. Both Israel and the church at various points are called a bride, a wife, a sister. So I don't think you, I could, I could write, we could talk for 45 minutes about why I think this is written to a church, right? But I don't think John's writing actually to an individual lady here. This is a metaphorical way of expressing endearment for this community. And if you look how John closes the letter in, verses 13, in verse 13, you can see how the metaphor of a lady and her children works out. The children of your sister, who is chosen by God, send their greetings. It's as if John is saying, your, your sister church greets you, okay? But if we're going to understand this letter, we need to know more than who it was written to. We need to know why it was written, right? You see, in much of Europe, this is the first century, okay, about somewhere between 80s or 90s uh, AD. And in much of Europe, in the Middle East, this is a period in history that's known as the Pax Romana. It's, it's the relative peace, Pax meaning peace, the peace that was brought by the massive Roman Empire. And it's, don't get me wrong, it's not that the Roman Empire was particularly peaceful. 
The peace brought by Rome was a result, actually, of their conquering all the nations surrounding them. And then what they did is they made this incredible system of kind of breaking technology, this system of roads, so that you could connect through their entire empire. So really, for the first time in history, people can travel away from home because there's a system of robes, and, and they can travel without fear that they're going to be killed simply because they're a foreigner. You have to understand in these days, if you go into some kind of Germanic barbarian uh, uh, village, they're not just saying, hey, welcome, stranger. They're, they're probably killing you <laughs> if, uh, if you do something wrong or even look somewhat mysterious. So when the Roman Empire, it, it gives people free reign to kind of move around, especially if they're Roman citizens. And this is, this is incredibly important for the spread of the gospel and for the spread of early Christianity. Paul, for instance, Paul could have never traveled through the Middle East and through some of Europe apart from the, the Roman Empire. You can actually see God's hand working out in very mysterious ways. But Paul, Paul wasn't the only traveling preacher in those days. Just like Jesus said, there, there would be frauds. And there were traveling preachers who went out from, apparently, Christian congregations, who went from community to community trying to make a quick buck and a quick following. And, and here John is saying, watch out for these guys. That they're preaching a false and destructive message. Just as much as the gospel can go forward, so false teaching can go forward in, in the Roman Empire easier than ever as well. That seems what's happening exactly here in 2 John. John is reminding the church in this letter what true Christianity is. And John would know, right? Because he sat at the feet of Jesus. He's an apostle. He was an intimate companion. He heard Jesus' teaching firsthand. So he knows when someone is teaching a fraudulent message. And he sees the dangers in this, and he's warning this community. That's what this letter is. If there's one main point of this letter, you see it there, there's, there's some notes on the, on the program that will kind of help guide you through this, um, this service. I think this is his main point. It's a bit longer, it's not incredibly witty, but here it is. True Christianity combines truth and love. The false teachers threaten the truth and love that exists in the church, so don't give them a hearing. Don't allow them in. True Christianity combines truth and love. These false teachers threaten the truth and love that exists in this church, so don't allow them a, a hearing. And that will basically form the three points that we have this evening, the three points in this letter. First, in the first six verses, now this is a bit strange because the greeting goes from one to three, and then the, the body of the letter starts in verse four. But I think the first... I'm, I'm going to say the first, uh, the first point here comes in all six verses. The, here are, you want to know true Christianity? It's not what these false teachers are giving you. It's the signs of genuine Christianity are this. Truth, love, obedience. The words truth and love occur ten times in the first six verses. Five times each. John begins by drawing his readers right to the core of Christianity. To the core of Jesus' teaching, in fact. The, the, the combination of truth and love is a beautiful summary of the gospel itself and also what the gospel produces in us. 
John wants this church to know first that he loves them. You can see it at the end of his letter, but here in verse 1, to the lady chosen by God and to her, cho to her children whom I love in the truth. And this love is not merely between him and the church, but it, it exists for all who know the truth. Verse 1b, and not I only, but also all who know the truth. But why? Why does this love exist between these people who believe the truth? Verse 2, because the truth lives in us and will be with us forever. This is what the first two verses are saying. The truth in us creates love between us. The truth in us creates love between us. It also shows you we're going to fail to have truth and, or to have love and unity in a church where truth doesn't truly exist, doesn't it? A lot of people will think, we often tend to think, in order to have love and unity, we need to probably sacrifice truth. But he says the exact opposite. You're not going to have love and unity apart from truth. Okay, if, if that truth, if the truth that lives in us creates love between us, what does it mean that the truth is in us? Organs are in me. Blood, uh, bl blood cells are in me. What does it mean that truth is in me? I think it means two things. Truth in us, I think, is truth internalized. There is a kind of truth you can ascribe to, right? You can, you can sign your name to. And yet, you could find that truth unattractive or unimportant. There are all kinds of truths that are not very attractive or important to me. You can hold some truth that makes absolutely no difference in your life. I mean, actually, if anything, the, the devil ascribes to truth that he hates. But to internalize truth is to cherish it, cherish that truth such that it becomes part of who you are. It's the kind of truth that forms your identity. Is that how the truth of Jesus works for you? Is the truth about Jesus something you ascribe your, your, your name to because for whatever reason you do, but it neither is very attractive to you or important to you? Friends, one is called nominal Christianity. I sign my name to it. The other one is, is the, the kind that forms your identity because it matters and you find it beautiful. Do you see? He's talking about internal truth. But, but there's an even deeper theological meaning here. When, when John says the truth lives in us, he's actually making not just a subjective statement, but an objective statement that Christ dwells in your hearts by faith. Jesus said what? I am the truth. And the only way for you to internalize that truth is if the truth dwells in you. If you don't have Jesus, that is, if you don't have trust in Jesus, and therefore a relationship with Jesus, you're never going to have biblical truth internalized in your, in your heart. And you're never going to be able to love others like the Bible calls you to. I want you to see here also, it's the gospel message that creates people who hold the truth and demonstrate love. You can see this in verse 3. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us. 
This is a fairly common greeting in the New Testament. But I want you to see this greeting, grace, mercy, peace, this is the gospel in three words. Grace and mercy is God's undeserving love and his favor toward us, not because, not as a response to our beauty or worthiness, but it's his grace and mercy poured on us despite our beauty and our ugliness and rebellion. The peace from God is his making harmony, his making reconciliation between God and us sinners, his enemies. Grace, mercy, and peace is John's way of saying the good news of the gospel is with you. That's what he's saying. But don't forget those four final words there. In truth and love, the gospel, grace, mercy, peace, produces people who hold the truth and demonstrate love. And it makes sense. I think it makes sense that truth and love are produced in us when we embrace the gospel because truth and love I actually think are the core ingredients embedded into the gospel itself. A, a, a pastor said this about, about these verses or actually in another book. But I think this is a good, a, a good uh, way of describing how truth and love are found in the gospel. God's saving love in Christ is marked by both radical truthfulness about who you are, right? And yet also radical, unconditional commitment, love, to us. The merciful commitment, love, strengthens us to see the truth about ourselves so that we repent. And then the conviction and repentance moves us to cling and rest on God's love and grace and mercy. So you see, truth and love are intrinsically combined in the gospel. And therefore, they're combined in the Christian life. Friends, the gospel is not simply our entrance into the Christian life. It's our manual for the Christian life. That's why I entitled the sermon, The Gospel Grammar, Truth and Love. Okay, let's, let's apply this a bit. The, the Christian life is, is community life. That's what we're doing right here. We're in community right now, and it's community life. It's a life spent interacting with both sinners and sin, both in yourself and in others. And a quick way to damage the, the, the churches, the, the gospel witness, is to fail to walk with one another in truth and in love. Tim Keller says this, Love without truth is mere sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but it keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we can't really hear it. Our culture tells us that the only way to love someone is if you affirm their behavior. If that's the case, then genuine love abandons the, the entire idea of truth, doesn't it? Let's think about our congregation. Some, some of you in the congregation are going to be more inclined to love by ignoring truth. When you encounter sin in your spouse, or your kids, or your parents, or your friends, or your church members, some of you are going to think, the only way I can love this person is if I just ignore their sin. Let me tell you, friend, that is not love. 
That's called superficial peace. It's actually not aimed at their good. It's actually aimed more at how you feel. Friends, I think many of us, I think this is kind of, this is the air we breathe, at least the air I breathe. I think many of us would move mountains in order to worship at the feet of conflict avoidance. So don't, do, don't worship at the feet of, of social ease at the expense of truth. There are, on the other hand, others of you and others of us that really love, there are others in this building that really love the moral framework Jesus provides. There's a line in the sand. If you you cross over it, you're toast, right? And a lot of times those people think because they have the truth that they're actually loving others by bludgeoning them with it. Friends, you can be right in an entirely wrong way. Some of you are going to be tempted to be harsh and judgmental and manipulative when you see something wrong in another person. This often often happens in families, certainly happens in, in churches. But you'll be tempted to say things like this. I've heard all of these. You do this, and you can kiss this family goodbye. You want a relationship with your grandkids? You better shape up. If you marry that girl, you can, you can say goodbye to your portion of the inheritance. Friends, the truth is not meant to bludgeon people with like a club into submission. You can't bring people into the truth. You can't bring people into right living by manipulating them or being harsh with them or withholding love from them. Think think about what God does with... Does God bring us into the truth by withholding love from us? No. This is the love of God. that he He poured out his love for you while we were still sinners. He loves us into the truth doesn't he? So combine truth and love like God does. God has no problem telling people they're sinners. But look at, look at how God handles sinners in the Bible. He's, he's patient with us. He doesn't execute judgment right away, does he? He's patient. He sympathizes with us. He sends Jesus Jesus enters into our plight. He's tempted in every way like us, yet he doesn't sin at all. He has a listening ear, one that sympathizes to our our needs. God's God's merciful with us. He provides a way of forgiveness at, at deep cost to himself. Patience, sympathy, mercy, that's how God combines truth and love. Well, that's just the greeting. John moves into the body of the letter, but we're still in point one. Continues in verses four through six. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father has commanded us. And now, dear lady, I'm not writing you a new command, but, but one that we have heard from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you've heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. So John's pleased with this congregation. They're walking in the truth. 
And, and John gives them a command, an ancient command, he says, a command that he's gotten from Jesus, and of course Jesus gives it from the law of Moses, and it's this, love one another. But look, look closely at verse 6. This is interesting. Love is obedience to God's commands. And then John continues. God's command is to walk in love. There's an unbreakable link there. But what does it mean to, to love? Obey God's commands. What does it mean? To, what, what's God's commands? It's to love. There's a, there's a link, unbreakable one, between love for God and obedience to God. Just, just like John does in his first letter. We, we, we just hammered this and hammered this because John hammers it in, in 1 John. There, there are three basic evidences to true Christianity. Number one, holding to the truth. Number two, love for God and others. Number three, obedience to God. Do you want to see where genuine Christianity... You know, people are always looking, where is true Christianity? Do these people have it? Do these people have it? John makes it quite clear. You want to see where tr Christianity resides? Look for where these three things show up. And this makes sense, right? If, if, God, if God is this kind of aloof, impersonal, transcendent thing up there, not personal in any way, this is very hard to follow. But if he's a loving, caring father that gives us what is good for us, then it, this makes sense. Why does God care so much about the truth? I mean, why can't, why can't God just say, find your own truth, just get along? That's what we'd be tempted to say, right? Because if you get the truth wrong, your whole framework for understanding goodness and love will be totally backwards. But, okay, why is obedience tied to love? Because a good father gives commands that are good for us. Listen, I'm... I generally hope that I'm a decent father, good father, certainly not as good as the father. But even me, as a very imperfect father, I give commands to Jane because they'll protect her. They'll help her mature. They'll help her grow into the kind of person that's going to help others around her flourish as well. All in all, my commands are not aimed at ruining her, bringing her less joy, but actually bringing her more joy and flourishing ultimately. So obedience to God is ultimately about loving God, yourself, and others. That's why they can't be broken. Alright, so why is he bringing this up? Why, why does this all matter? Because there's danger. There's danger to your living in the truth and love, and that danger is false teaching. It's going to get to in verses 7 through 9. False teaching, number 2, threatens genuine Christianity. Verse 7. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. That's why we think they're kind of traveling preachers. The first thing we see them doing is that these, these false teachers are giving a false message. A false gospel. They're pretending it's good news when in fact it's anything but good news. Okay, but why was it a false message? It's a false message because they offered a false Christ. A Christ who doesn't provide the, the solution to our greatest need. Essentially what they're doing is they're offering a Christ who is not fully God and who is not fully man and therefore who can't atone for our sins. 
sometimes these seem like abstract, fully God, fully man. Why, do we, why does that, why is that important? If Christ is not fully God, to worship him is idolatry. And for him to accept our worship is blasphemy. In the New Testament, Jesus both accepts our worship and the New Testament calls us to worship Christ. If Christ is not fully man, then he didn't really experience our humanity. He's not a genuine substitute for our sins. He can't be a true representative of our plight. God cannot truly die if he's not fully man. He must be fully man. And if Christ did not die to atone for our sins, if he didn't die to pay the penalty for our, that our sins deserved, then his death is not something to celebrate. It's a, tra- it's a tragedy to mourn, right? If his death didn't do anything, it's just an untimely death of a, of a guy who thought he was quite prophetic but wasn't anything. So the false teachers were... The, the only Christ offered to us, however, in the Bible, right, and it's the Christ we need, is one who is fully God and fully man and dies in our place so that we can be reconciled to God. The God who is holy, the men who are not holy, and the God-man who comes between. That's the gospel. But these false teachers were not only selling a false Christ, but a novel Christ. Look at verse 9. Especially two words. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ. There's a lot of work behind these two words, runs ahead, in the, in the Greek. But the idea here is that these traveling preachers, who are preaching heresy, were presenting their ideas as new. They were presenting their ideas as ahead of the times, novel, groundbreaking insights. Perhaps they said, this is where history is moving. You don't want to be stuck in the past. This week I was listening to an interview, uh, I think it was on NPR, uh, with a unit, oh, you don't know it. Does NPR, you guys don't do NPR here, do you? Never mind. A, a show. I was listening to a, an interview with a university professor, and, and, she, and she was promoting uh, mandatory use of preferred, um, preferred pronouns, non, non-gendered pronouns. So they, theirs, theirs. Basically, you can pick from 50 pronouns, or actually none at all if you want, depending on whatever pronoun you want to be known and identify as. But, but what, that's really not my point. My point is that in this interview, she admits that one of her foundational beliefs, core beliefs to how she thinks, is that change, just change, is always good. And, and the interviewer even pressed him on it. Wait, you're talking about any kind of change is just good. She goes, yeah. What? Listen, I, I don't want Christians stuck in the past out of nostalgia. Don't get me wrong. In my opinion, most Christians are doing fairly fine at living in modern, technological, scientific age. Don't get me wrong, the Bible is not anti-progress. In fact, the Bible is a quite progressive book, if you understand certain definitions of progress. But change is not a virtue in itself. This seems fairly obvious in my opinion, but when you change a bad thing good, that's good. And when you change a good thing bad, that's, that's bad. Change in itself is neither good nor bad. But I can tell you what, change from biblical truth is always disastrous. Always disastrous. It's harmful, actually, to your soul. 
we're going to be bombarded by new saviors, novel Christs, novel um, philosophies that are, are saying this is where you'll find happiness and truth, saving. But here's the thing, though. This message that these teachers are giving is not only false, it's destructive. Verse 8. The false teachers are giving a destructive message. Watch out that you do not lose what we worked for. Verse 9. Anyone who does not continually continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The New Testament authors take false teaching deadly serious. Primarily because it will destroy you. They don't shy away from saying, if you don't persevere in truth and love, you're going to lose out in, on eternity with God. Now, now, let me be clear here. In the Bible, if you have genuine faith in Christ, God will keep you. He's not going to lose anyone he has, right? Oh, but the Bible is also clear that people come to Jesus they put their faith in Jesus with all kinds of motives, don't they? Some come to Jesus only in a time of crisis. Kind of like he's a good luck charm, right? Some come, come to Jesus just because they, they want more friends. Some come to Jesus so they, that they can have a platform. You know, play in a worship band or whatnot. Some come to Jesus because that's just what their family did and they just don't want to kind of break up the peace of the family. Jesus says, many, many will say to me on that day, did we not prophesy in your name? And he's going to turn around and say, friend, I, I didn't know you. Get away from me, my, you evil doer. What horrifying kind of words is that? So you might be saying, okay, Luke, how do I know if I have genuine faith? The answer is actually simple. It will continue. Okay? How do I know that I do it? It's going to continue. Listen, we all have mixed motives when we come to Christ because we're all mixed up sinners, right? But genuine faith is faith that continues. That's what the New Testament keeps on you know, slamming home all the time. If you have genuine faith, it's just going to continue. Even when tragedy strikes, even when the culture shifts, even when the family abandons you, even when the worship band doesn't need you anymore. How do I know if I have genuine faith? It, doesn't, it just continues. False teachers threaten genuine Christianity because they're, they offer a false message and a destructive message. So his last point here, in these final verses is, okay, so don't give false teaching a hearing in your church. Verses 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, that's the teaching of Christ, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. Okay, what's going on here? Uh, let me, before I kind of explain it a bit, let me just give you, I think, John's basic point in these, verse, these two verses. You should handle false teachers and false teaching like a father would handle someone who is breaking into your house and trying to harm your children. You wouldn't open the door and say, come on in, please leave the shoes at the door. No, when you believe there is real danger present, you take precaution. You protect the household. 
But we first need to get something, we need to get something clear here, because this can be taken wrongly, I think. John is talking about someone who is actively promoting false teaching that is destructive to the gospel, okay? This, this is someone who is attacking, is undermining the very core of the gospel. This isn't someone coming with a different view of Revelation. This isn't someone coming with a different view of baptism. This isn't someone coming with a different view on men's and women's roles in the church. Okay, all these things might have levels of importance and different levels of importance, right? But he's talking about people who are denying the core of the gospel. But you still might object. Wait, John was just talking about this combination, right, of truth and love. And this bit about not letting people into your house not welcoming them? Doesn't seem very loving, Luke. Seems like he could be under the indictment of your first point. Very well. I think, I think there are two ways of explaining the rest of this text, and I think both actually are quite loving. But let me, let me give them both to you, actually. On the one hand, you could understand these last two verses to be saying this. John could be saying, when these false teachers come to town, don't provide them with the hospitality in your personal home that you would generally give to a stranger. You, you have to understand what hospitality is in the first century. It's much different than today. When a stranger came to town back then, right, there isn't just an inn, a hotel for them to stay in. Actually, there are some inns, but they're kind of known as places of very ill repute, so you wouldn't really send a, a stranger or a friend there. But if you're, so Christians would often invite strangers into their very home. It's just a place to stay, okay, in the first century. But the other thing that did is when you invited someone to your home, you kind of tested them for a while because you were only letting them have a place to stay. You were vouching for them in the community, right? You didn't have, there was no kind of universal human rights at this point. You weren't coming with like certain unalienable rights when you walked into a town. You were coming in on the basis of someone else vouching for you. Oh, this is a good guy. You don't need to throw him out or you know, take his donkey or whatever. So to open up your home to a fellow Christian in those days, especially one who's saying, I'm coming to promote teaching, is implied in that is a recognition of their Christian standing, okay? That could be one way. There's, an, there's another way of, of kind of interpreting this text, and John could be saying this. When one of these traveling preachers, who is a false teacher, comes to town, and he wants a hearing in your house church, don't accept or welcome him in any official way, especially into the assembly that meets in your house. So, you, okay, what, what, are you, what are you getting at here, Luke? Remember, most churches at this point don't meet in buildings like this. They meet in a wealthy person's home, okay? All, all through the New Testament, you'll see the, person, the church that meets in this home and the church that meets in this home, okay? There was no church buildings, really, in the first century. At least not that we can tell. So they met in someone's home. And you can even see that John, I think that John understood it in the second way because he's, he's writing to the chosen lady and her children, which is a local church, right? He's not writing to an individual, but to a church. And to not welcome someone into your household, or to tease out the, the metaphor a little bit more, your regular assembly that gathers in a house speaks not so much about personal hospitality, but letting someone have a public voice in the, the church that gathers in the house. It's a way of saying, protect the household of God, okay? 
So of course, what they're saying is, either way, false teaching is deadly, it's deadly serious, it can really harm you, it can bring harm on the church, it's destructive. Protect your church like you would protect your family from an invader. But this all depends on whether you truly believe that false teaching is dangerous. John did. Paul did. Peter did. Jesus did. But do you believe that truth matters? Especially truth about Jesus. Honestly, I think we're... This is probably one of those truths that we're happy to ascribe to, but I, I bet we're probably... It functionally, when you really get down to it, we probably think, most of the time, false teaching isn't that serious. It really can't harm you. Our world doesn't really value the idea of truth. Now, at least not, not like it values the idea, of, I think in some cases it does, but not like it values the idea of love. If you claim to have love, you seem noble in our culture. If you, if you claim to have truth, you seem probably snobbish and a bit intolerant. But this brings us back to the beginning. John would argue that truth and love can't be separated. In fact, you love people with the truth. And the truth makes you loving. And he's even saying here, there are times when love for the body of Christ causes us to take extreme measures of precaution to protect the family of God. As we go on from here, Friends, there's a million ways we could, we could apply this, and we've done some applying already, but I'd encourage you to take some time thinking about what false messages might capture our hearts today. These are good conversations for us to have one-on-one -on -one in life group, perhaps. What savior is the world offering you that actually dismisses the savior of Jesus? What new or novel philosophy sounds really attractive to you, but it pulls you away from the truth of Christ? These are all good questions to ask one another for their application. The gospel upholds both truth and love. It tells you the truth about who you are, that you're broken, that you're a sinner, that you're sinful and selfish and rebellious. But the gospel also calls you to repent of your sinful condition so that you can embrace the love that Jesus Christ poured out for you on the cross. And there's the beauty of the gospel, right? The more you let the message of the gospel sink into every crevice and cavity of your life, you'll actually find that the gospel grammar of truth and love begins to pour out of your life into every interaction and relationship. 